Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is Prospects Podcast and I'm Tom Clark, the editor. This is a podcast about ideas, politics, culture, economics. We'll cover it all. Today it's politics though, and we've got a former top advisor to Barack Obama in the studio, Ben Rhodes. And so Obama, I think, felt like if we had 150,000 troops in Iraq for a decade and we couldn't really fix the politics of that country, stop sectarian killing from happening, why would airstrikes work in, in Syria? Ben's got a new book out, The World As It Is, inside the Obama White House. And he was here in the studio talking to Steve Bloomfield. So Steve, um, a fairly impressive person, fairly interesting. Listen, what exactly do you think um, Ben Rhodes did for Barack Obama? Well, Ben Rhodes started off as a speechwriter on foreign policy, uh, but he very quickly became one of Barack Obama's closest foreign policy advisers. And I think this was partly because of the way that Barack Obama operated in that speech writing for him was also a way of forming policy, of working out what he thought about something. So those that wrote his speeches tended to have actually a bit of a say in in what policy was. Is that a good thing or is that a bit of a worry that you're sort of seducing yourself with your own phrases? And In a way, I think it's a good thing. Certainly the way that I've, reading Ben's book and thinking about it, I think it's a good thing in that... During the Arab uprisings, there are a number of times where Obama turns to, to Rhodes and says, look, I think we need to we need to take a step back and think about the context within which we're taking all these decisions. And the way that he would do that is to then make a speech. And so by having those conversations and thinking about what it was he wanted to do, that allowed him to frame his his ideas more clearly. Um, and so in the book, there's this fascinating chapter about the the Cairo speech, which was this early speech, which Obama had promised he'd do during the election, which was uh, a speech um, to the Muslim world that would take place in a Muslim nation. And that involves Barack Obama and Ben Rhodes talking about what America's stance towards the Muslim world should be, trying to frame some of these big issues. Um, and I think that helped him get a grip of what America should really be doing. Ronald Reagan had some uh, very fluent speech writers, so did George uh, W. Bush. One of them, David Frum, now makes a, a good living as a, as a as a journalist. Didn't necessarily mean they always got the policy right. Were there any cases where you thought something sounded too good and Obama couldn't resist saying it and it got him into trouble? 
I don't think there are that many of those examples. Um, oddly, actually, the the thing that got him into trouble, which he said, was something which wasn't in a speech. It was something that he stumbled over in a press conference mm. when he said his infamous line about Syria and and the red line, uh, and that if a, if Assad uses chemical weapons, that would be a red line for us. That was an off-the-cuff remark in a press conference. And actually, the, the written-down phrase, I can't remember it word for word, but it's something like, if we see a load of chemical weapons being moved around or even used, that would be a red line for us. Mm. Now, that became you know, one of his most, uh, most talked-about policies, in inverted commas. It wasn't in a speech, and perhaps if it uh, had been part of more thoughtful speech it might have had different consequences. Okay, so if we take this benign view of what um, oratory is doing in a, in a thoughtful Obama White House where every word is considered, can you see any instances where you think Ben Rhodes was particularly influential? There are two things which he was actually given the, the sort of the docket for, as it were. He was told to, like, you're responsible for this policy, uh, quite aside from speech writing. One of those was the opening up to Cuba, um, which I think uh, even now can be looked back on as a success. Uh, the other is uh, the opening up to uh, Myanmar or, or Burma, as, as the Americans still call it, which obviously has been a, a bit trickier, but I think still wouldn't have. Uh, I, I still don't think most people would say it was the wrong move. There should have been some engagement with Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, so those are the two sort of major policy areas where he was um, involved in terms of uh speeches which perhaps should have done better or could have been different again we mentioned the, the speech in cairo uh at the start of the obama presidency if you go back and look at that now uh given everything that happened with the arab spring it feels very very dated um but then i think that's just an indication of just how much changed in that region over the last over the last decade okay let's go over and see what ben himself has got to say ben rhodes thank you very much for joining us today thanks um one of the most striking things when reading your book is oddly about the powerlessness sometimes of the Oval Office, not just of America and the world, but also in your Oval Office of President Obama, not always necessarily getting his own way on issues of foreign affairs, whether that was people in the Pentagon or the State Department mm. or elsewhere who had their own opinions. Yeah. How much of a problem was that for you? It was a problem. I mean, you know, the U.S. presidency, it can be overstated. The U.S. presidency is the most powerful office, um, I think, in, in geopolitics. Um, and the president has some freedom of action. Um, however, there, there are different complexities to it that I wanted to show. Um, when you have an adversarial Congress, um, that can tie your hands. Sometimes literally, like we couldn't close Guantanamo because Congress passed legislation to prevent us from doing that. Sometimes in terms of your assessment of your own political standing to take on risky things. And I describe one of the reasons why uh, President Obama didn't go to Syria, for instance, is because uh, he knew he wouldn't have congressional support and they could undercut the success and sustainability of anything. I think most importantly, though, the character of who your interlocutors are around the world really matter. <laughs> so to take one example, you know, if Yitzhak Rabin is the prime minister of Israel, 
uh, a peace deal becomes quite possible. That was going to be impossible with Prime Minister Netanyahu there. So I did want to show in the book the complexities of the fact that even when you're in the most powerful office, you know, there are external factors that shape uh, somewhat where you can find opportunities and where you run into impediments. It was perhaps most interesting with the Arab uprisings yes. from 2011 onwards. And as you show in, in the book, it was, and this isn't necessarily a criticism because this happened to everyone, but you know, you were always playing catch up yeah. on events there. And there were also people on within your own government who thought that actually the best thing America should be doing wasn't siding with the protesters in Tahrir Square, yeah. but siding with Mubarak. Yes. Well, at the very beginning of that, um, when the protests really emerged in Tahrir Square, um, the U.S. government's reflexive response was to back Mubarak. You know, we had a long-standing, obviously, military relationship with Egypt. And you know, people like Hillary Clinton or Bob Gates, our Secretary of Defense, and others looked at the change coming there and just saw nothing but downside. Um, Obama, and, they, and they knew Mubarak as well. They, they knew him personally, yeah. And here's where human relationships come in. I mean, Obama took a different position. It wasn't just because he saw the, the hopefulness of possible change in Egypt. He also saw instability, that Mubarak wasn't going to be able to weather this storm. Um, but the personal relationships do matter. I mean, he did say to me, after calling Mubarak and telling him he thought he needed to step down, he said, look, I, uh, I wanted to be, I was kind of saying, you know, <laughs> that wasn't where the rest of your government was. And almost in a sympathetic way, he said to me, uh, I don't know that I could have made the same call to King Abdullah of Jordan. Uh, King Abdullah of Jordan was a friend of <laughs> President Obama's. So uh, personal relationships enter into it too. But I think more broadly on Egypt, um, it had to do with kind of the structural relationship between the U.S. government and the Egyptian military, which was one that very much favored the status quo. And throughout the book, you see these sort of internal conflicts within the U.S. government on the Arab Spring. It's almost, yeah. is it a bit too simplistic to say that there was a bit of a divide between the young and the old? No, it actually broke down pretty clearly that way at the beginning, um, where the older advisors, um, people who've been around like Joe Biden and Bob Gates and Hillary Clinton, they did not want to break from Mubarak. Uh, most of them did not want to go into Libya. Um, they were very wary of Syria. Um, whereas the younger advisors were more in the kind of liberal interventionist type of a uh, camp where we saw an opportunity and thought we had to take some steps to try to shape it. Um, these dynamics changed over time uh, in an interesting way um, in that Obama himself became far more skeptical of good outcomes in the Arab Spring. I think by 2012, he'd kind of taken the measure of what was happening and had come to the realization or the belief that the, the structural problems inside each of these countries, the sectarian dynamics, the unresolved issues of Islam and politics, um, all of that, the presence of extremism, all of that suggested that our ability from afar to impose outcomes on these countries was in, inherently limited. Um, and, and from that point on, his posture shifted from one of trying to essentially manage uh, the chaos in the region, protect a kind of set of narrow core, core interests, um, but not necessarily go all in and try to reshape the region. We talk a lot about how um, Iraq has shaped the way people view the Middle East and particularly what's happening in Syria. Uh, do you think also actually the 
the military intervention in Libya and the aftermath of that played a big role in then what your government decided to do and not do in Syria? I think it I think it did play a role um, in the sense that, you know, I think Iraq played the biggest role because of, you know, the very recent example of having a huge military presence in a country and still not being able to stop a sectarian war. And so Obama, I think, felt like if we had 150,000 troops in Iraq for a decade and we couldn't really fix the politics of that country, stop sectarian killing from happening, why would airstrikes work in, in Syria? I think with Libya, um, Obama felt like the intervention itself achieved its aims, uh, frankly exceeded our objectives in terms of it stopped uh, Gaddafi's forces from conducting massacres, saved a lot of lives, ultimately led to Gaddafi's removal from office uh, and his death. Um, but that even that well-executed military intervention was followed by chaos in Libya, that there were no institutions that could emerge that tribal conflicts quickly emerged. Extremists certainly uh, tried to exploit that vacuum uh, and took root inside of Libya. Part of the lesson being that in Iraq we had kind of a full-bore military invasion. In Libya we had a more limited military intervention. Both led to essentially the same place. Um, and, And I think Obama just came to feel like there's less and less reason to believe that the U.S. military whether we're all in or less in, can remake uh, the, these countries. I think in Libya, we also saw zero political support for another war in, in the Middle East. And, and this was important, you know, that the, the U.S. Congress turned quickly against the Libya intervention, even without casualties. U.S. public opinion was not for the Libya intervention, even without casualties. And so when Obama was weighing whether to go into Syria, he's thinking, I don't know that I can sustain politically a, a mil- the military intervention that would be required um, to make some type of difference inside of Syria, because I don't have congressional support, I don't have public support, I don't frankly have international support, um, and, uh, and and you know that that gets to the question of it's not just whether you can justify intervention, it's whether intervention can actually work. Do you feel you were slightly led down the garden path by France and Britain, who were far more gung ho about Libya, but then didn't really have a plan at the end for what to do? You know, I. To some extent, you know, uh, the the decision, you know, came to us on Libya in part because France and Britain were gung-ho, but in part because also I describe in the book, we were literally sitting in a meeting, shown a map, <laughs> here's Gaddafi's forces, here's the city of Benghazi, they're on the outskirts, and we're told that if we do nothing in a few days, he'll go door-to-door and kill people like rats. But the U.S. had the capability through a bombing campaign, a limited intervention to stop that from happening, because stop the advance of those forces. Obama made the decision to do that, um, but he worked out with Sarkozy and Cameron a handoff. So essentially, we go in at the front end, uh, we take out Gaddafi's forces, we take out his air defenses, then the French and the British do a no-fly zone. Uh, And then we have a post-conflict plan that we we developed. I think what was apparent in the post-conflict situation is that we didn't have a robust plan. Um, the Europeans were supposed to take some responsibility, for instance, for training security forces. I think in their defense, that became very complicated because the Libyans didn't want anybody inside their country. So we couldn't kind of deploy, say, NATO trainers to Libya. That was a non-starter. I seem to recall you know, the Brits taking some Libyans up here to the UK 
and then there were some crimes committed and and I think there was even like a rapes committed and 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 uh and that became a non-starter for the Brits and they couldn't do the training here and and nobody could find a way to build Libyan capacity, um, not in the security forces, the political leaders that we were dealing with, and this was a misjudgment on all of our part. There were some, you know, pretty seemingly good Libyan political leaders in the Transitional National Council. They had no connection to the people on the ground. So the people you're meeting with politically are saying all the right things about a transition to democracy, but the militias are the ones that are actually controlling events inside of Libya. So the people we're dealing with are not actually the people who really are running the place. Um, and that that gave us very little lever to pull to change the course of events. So what does all this mean for the idea of liberal interventionism? Or, I mean, it's a phrase that yeah. you know, certainly here lots of people shy away from now. But the idea of uh, the liberal Western democracies, as long as they are still liberal, hmm. um, actually helping to prevent wars, prevent genocides around the world. Has that died? I don't think so. I describe my own evolution from being someone who was very much in that camp to someone who was much more skeptical. Um, I would draw a distinction, though. What, what I became really skeptical about was using the military to address the internal dynamic in another country. So a civil war, for instance, um, uh, or trying to promote democracy, democratic governance through the use of your military. I, I found that the U.S. military is really good at destroying things, but it doesn't build things. You know, it can take out a terrorist training camp. It can take out a dictator even. But we can't really build what comes after. And that's not a fault of the military. That's just not what they're designed to do. And frankly, countries are sovereignty conscious and they're resistance to that kind of military intervention. So I do think that that means that we should learn from Afghanistan and Iraq um, and, and, and Libya and come to the realization that, you know, we can't keep trying to engineer events inside of these countries with our militaries. I do think there's still some place, um, particularly to intervene before things go off the rails. So mm -hmm. in other words, the, the time to consider some form of intervention, um, you know, you have to act with the, when the early warning signals are present. Sure, but the, the problem with that is, you know, Early warning signals don't necessarily make it to the Oval Office, do they? Sometimes they do. Sometimes like how many they don't. times do you talk about Burundi, for example? We, well, actually, we did. <laughs> you know, we actually did talk about Burundi. Um, you know, because we actually developed uh, some early warning capability. But I, I actually think that this is not um, the type of stuff that generates political headlines. But we started to try to invest a lot in the international community, the the, the UN peacekeeping capability. You know, when I think of uh, Mali or the Central African Republic, for instance, uh, we were able to be a part of a pretty limited deployment uh, where you essentially have U.S. logistics supporting either French or U.N. efforts to at least avert much worse outcomes. Uh, I think there needs to be that form of international capacity uh, to put some limited presence on the ground when you see things going south. Um, to, to at least provide a foothold uh, for some form of stability. Um, it's a very different type of mission than saying, you know, we're going to go take out Saddam Hussein or the Taliban or Bashar al-Assad or Muammar Gaddafi and then try to construct some state that can stop there from being a civil war. So I think a much more limited and humble view of how to carry out liberal interventionism um, 
is in play. And I think you have to recognize that there may be some problems that elude a military solution. Who can do that now when you look around the world? Who do you think has the, the capability, the, the will, and also the, the respect needed to carry out those sorts of interventions? In terms of countries? Um, countries or coalitions? Yeah. I think that the UN, um, obviously, you know, for all the grief it takes, particularly from my country, um, does provide uh, an umbrella for those types of, uh, of efforts, of legitimacy. I think in terms of individual countries, it remains a pretty limited group uh, in terms of uh, the United States and the, the French and the United Kingdom, uh, maybe a handful of other European countries. Right now, what's happening, I think, is that the U.S. Is, was already in a, a position after Iraq where we had less legitimacy. I think under Trump, our ability to essentially be the de facto leader of the world is being called into significant question. I, I think U.S. military interventions are going to only become more contested if they're undertaken by Trump. Um, I think it, there's an interesting conversation about NATO versus European capabilities in this regard. Um, you know, there is a role, I think, for NATO to do some of this. Um, I also know that you know, the French in particular have been contemplating some type of European effort um, where the particularly capable European militaries, um, you know, the UK could be in or out. <laughs> Who knows where, where they are relative to Europe? But, you know, the French and the Italians and the Spanish and some of the Nordic countries, you know, could actually work together to do this. Um, I actually think that, that uh, that's, a, that's a credible idea. In, a, in an ideal world, you would do that through NATO. Um, if, if NATO is fraying, given Trump's leadership, um, it may be that that's something that the Europeans could undertake. Um, you've mentioned Trump a few times. Let's let's talk about him. <laughs> I watched uh, the final year yeah. documentary, which you, you play a large part in, and uh, throughout that, you're uh, it's following you over the final year of, of your term in of, of Obama's term in office, and you're asked again and again about Trump, and yeah. and we see you go, oh no, no don't worry, don't worry, yeah. it's, it's all going to be all right, it's all going to be fine. And there's this wonderful bit as well at the end when you're faced with the, the yeah. reality of it, where you can't speak for about a minute, yeah. which is, I think, what most of us were like. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel now? I actually think, um, you know, the reason that I couldn't speak. <laughs> You know, if a Republican had won, um, I wouldn't have liked that. Another Republican. I wouldn't have liked that, but I wouldn't have been like that. It would have been disappointing but recognizable. Uh, I think I feared that Trump was just an unrecognizable force in American politics and geopolitics, that, that, that he was a, a toxic blend of, of racism and uh, populism and nationalism. Uh, and, and I felt a huge amount of uncertainty about where that would lead. Uh, I think it has been at least as bad, if not worse, than I anticipated. Um, he's basically not in any way a recognizable figure in the U.S. presidency. You know, uh, everything from his attacks on an independent media to the independence of uh, legal investigations uh, to his kind of hostility to how the world functions to, towards U.S. allies um, and international institutions that we've uh, been at the center of. 
Um, you know, I think he is a massive disruption to both stability in the United States um, and to the elements of stability in the world. And I don't think we quite yet know the consequences. You know, there's one of the things that's clear in the book. There's a bit of a tail to decision making, you know, in the presidency. You do things, the consequences don't become apparent for a year or two or three. I think we're going to start to see the consequences of what Trump is doing. Let's just take it around the world. Um, in the next year or two or three years. And I think what you're going to see is a rapid uh, reapportionment of power and influence in the world away from the United States and towards China in particular. Uh, I think you're going Not to see— Not Russia. You think more China. I think China is going to be the main beneficiary of the, the Trump— uh, And what Trump will that years. mean for the rest of us? What will that mean for uh, the rules-based order? Uh, I think it, it's going to mean it means a lot more in the Asia Pacific and Latin America and Africa, frankly. Like Europe has probably the biggest antibodies to it, but I think it's going to be China trying to create an order, a rules-based order in which they are the ones setting the rules. Um, the rules that they're setting are pretty old-fashioned. You kind of have to pay into our system. You know, um, uh, you you have to you have to be part of our initiative. You have to trade with us on our terms. Um, we have the most money to throw around. It's going to be much more corrupt. Um, they can go to lots of parts of the world and essentially buy their way into the access that they want. Um, it's going to be much less focused on collective action. Uh, you know what the U.S. did for all its flaws is we could mobilize collective action behind a problem to solve a problem, including some of the ones we talked about. You know, China is not going to lead the effort to prevent the spread of the Ebola epidemic or to respond to a natural disaster or to avert a humanitarian crisis. So, you know, it's a return to kind of an older brand of, of, of international politics, right, where might makes right. Just one final question. Um, you're here in the UK. Uh, you came here with Obama during the referendum campaign. Uh, as an outsider, how do you view our current political crisis i think crisis isn't yeah. a word that anyone else would shy away from here at the moment um do you feel it's as poisoned as american politics is at the moment what's your take it's probably not quite as poisoned as american politics but it really is a different side of the same coin um trump was elected saying a lot of things that i think weren't true um i think the brexit campaign succeeded while making a lot of promises that were not true and i think now in the uk you're living in this strange period where, uh, number one, Brexit hasn't happened yet. So you're in this kind of strange pocket between the referendum and the actual Brexit, where the consequences of that decision haven't taken hold yet, um, but they've disrupted your politics. <laughs> um, number two, precisely because the Brexit campaign was run on some falsehoods, if not a lot of falsehoods, the people responsible for that campaign don't want to be responsible for the Brexit. I mean, it's very telling to me that a guy like Boris Johnson didn't want to be prime minister. And so you have this person in Theresa May who was tentatively remain and is now responsible for Brexit is just not the natural person to carry it out. Um, but everybody wants her to be the face of it because nobody else does, <laughs> precisely because they know it's probably not going to turn out well. You have political imperatives that are completely at, at odds between the UK and Europe. Europe has a huge imperative to, to not make concessions in this negotiation so as to not incentivize other people to leave Europe. Uh, the UK has an incentive to not 
demonstrate in how Brexit happens that it's a hard landing and that it's going to have huge impacts on your economy and kind of some of the the, the issues that are important to, to people. And I think that that that's all got to come to a head. You're you're in this kind of temporary phase where, it, you know, it's all politics here and not yet consequences. But you know, the closer you get to that deadline, um, the more some of these irreconcilable issues uh, are going to have to be reconciled. Um, and ultimately, I think that means facing up to the consequences of what Brexit really is um, and getting to the other end of that and seeing how your politics catch up to that, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Ben Rhodes, thank you very much. Thanks. Ben Rhodes there, talking to my colleague Steve Bloomfield. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Jay Elwes, and thanks also to Steve. Many thanks, too, to Ben Rhodes for coming in and speaking to us, and Steve's review of Ben's book can be found in the current issue of our magazine, the July issue, that is. You can also read it, along with lots of other articles on US politics, including an extraordinary profile of the US's extraordinary Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, on our brilliant and absorbing website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. While you're there, I'm sure you'll notice that the subscription rates are very reasonable. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.